Old Testament Background to Hebrews, Part 2, Psalms. The fifth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on November 2, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number one. Translation. Installment one. Accompanies this talk. We're in chapter one of Hebrews. I'll do a more extensive review when we get done with the Psalms. What I'm going to be doing today is continuing looking at a number of different Psalms almost all of which are quoted or cited in the argument of chapter 1 of Hebrews. So really, in order to understand the point that Paul is making and the argument that he's making in Hebrews 1, we have to understand how he's understanding these psalms that he's quoting. So that's what we're endeavoring to do at this moment. But just a brief review so that we can get oriented to what his argument is. The issue is, very simply... Jesus cannot be an ordinary mortal human being and be the Messiah. So think the people that are beginning to rethink whether or not they want to be followers of Jesus. They're beginning to back off their belief that Jesus is the Messiah and to return to their ancestral Jewish religion and just forget this whole Jesus thing. They're starting to do that. And that's what prompts Paul to write this to them. And so he's, he's going to spend a lot of time encouraging them to stay the course and how important it is for them to finish what they started, to stay on this journey that they began and not abandon it. So he'll let, spend a lot of time encouraging them to do that. But when he's not doing that, he's making an argument for why it is that it's perfectly appropriate that Jesus be an ordinary human being who got himself killed by the Romans and that that is completely compatible with God's purposes and God's promises and everything that God is doing in the world. So the opening of Hebrews, he contrasts Jesus with the angeloi, and I have argued that the angeloi that he has in mind here are theophanies, basically, that somehow the idea had evolved in the thinking of the Jews of the first century, among some of them, not all of them, but among some of them, that when the Messiah came, or when the Son of God came, that the Son of God would be some form of theophany. And by theophany, I mean a God would come and simply appear in some kind of human form. He wouldn't be a human being. He would be God appearing in the form of a human being. And so the fact that Jesus of Nazareth actually was a human being was problematic to them. And so Paul has to make the case here in the opening argument of Hebrews that ordinary human being that he is, the Son of God as predicted in the Old Testament is far superior than any angeloi ever could be. So that's the argument he's making. We've taken a look at exactly how he builds that argument. But in the course of doing that, he makes the statement... He was as much superior to the Angeloi as he had received a superior, a more excellent name than theirs. And then he launches into a citation after citation after citation from a number of different psalms. We looked at 
three of those, I think, well, two Psalms last week. We looked at 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant, where Nathan comes to David, and when David is about to build the temple, and he says, no, you're not going to build the temple. I don't want you to build the temple. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a permanent structure for you to rule in and reign over the people of Israel, and you will reign over them on my behalf. You will be the embodiment of my rule. And he puts that, he says that in the form, I will be a father to you, and you will be a son to me. And we looked at that. Then we looked at Psalm 8, where David meditates on, why me? Why would God choose me to make me the son? to make me be that human being who's the embodiment of Yahweh's rule. And what, part of what's so interesting about Psalm 8 is Psalm 8 talks about the whole domain of David's rule as being over all of creation. And why? What's the logic behind that? Because God's reign is over all of creation. So if Yahweh reigns over all of creation and David is the embodiment of Yahweh's reign, then that's what God has said you're going to inherit. You and your seed, your son, your offspring, will ultimately rule over all of creation. And he meditates on that and is just awestruck by how amazing that is, that somebody as small and insignificant as a human being would be given that for a destiny, that for an inheritance. Then we looked at Psalm 2, and in Psalm 2, it's a song written to be sung at the coronation of the king, possibly David himself, in a second coronation, or certainly probably Solomon and any future Davidic king who is going to be crowned king of Israel, Psalm 2 is written to be sung at that coronation. And in a nutshell, it becomes very clear in that psalm how David understands that the role of the king of Israel, as God had promised in the Davidic covenant, was that as Yahweh would rule over all the nations, the king of Israel will rule over all the nations. We're going to see that repeated in a couple of psalms today. He will rule over all the nations. But the nations don't naturally want to bow their knee to God. So there's tension and there's opposition there. The nations are in an uproar. They want to raise up and destroy God and his anointed. And so the psalm is a warning to them. You take care. Don't you touch God's anointed, his Messiah. Don't you touch his Messiah, because if you touch him, you're going against God, and you don't, you don't want to be found on the wrong side of God. So it's a warning to the nations. So we looked at that. Now we get to Psalm 97. This is a little harder to decipher, and there are some interesting challenges in interpreting Psalm 97. As I said last week, the key to understanding all these psalms that we're looking at is to become rightly oriented toward what what the background is. What's the occasion? What are the background assumptions here? If we get that wrong, we're not going to understand the psalm. So it's critical that we get oriented to it correctly. This psalm talks a lot about Yahweh's majesty, Yahweh's power, Yahweh's sovereignty, his authority. But... And so it would be easy to think that this has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus and certainly nothing to do with David or, or the other kings of Israel. But that would be wrong. I think this has everything to do with David and the Davidic kings of Israel and then ultimately, of course, Jesus. It has everything to do with them because the psalm is to be sung on the occasion 
of the King of Israel. It's either to be sung on the occasion or it's a meditation on the coming into power and coming into his reign, into his rule of the King of Israel. I will just say king of Israel, but recognize it's always a Davidic king of Israel. It's, it's the king of Israel after David, after the covenant that we looked at in Second Samuel has been struck between God and the house of David. So as a shorthand, I'll just describe it as the king of Israel, but not just any old king would this apply to. It's the Davidic king. So the basic assumption behind this psalm is because the king is the Son, God is the Father and the King is the Son, and he therefore is the embodiment of Yahweh's rule, that whatever is true about Yahweh's authority and power and rule is true of the human King David, or Solomon, or or the future Davidic king. So he starts in 97.1, Yahweh reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. Now, if we don't take into account the situation, that just sounds like God is God, whoopee. It's not God is God. It's not the ruler of the universe is ruling. It's as this man gets crowned king of Israel, this is Yahweh reigning. This man is Yahweh. This man is Yahweh ruling, Yahweh in his sovereignty. And we'll see that the psalm falls in place if we understand that that's the sort of thing that he's saying. One of the clues we have that that's what's going on is you wouldn't, we don't have this clue in the Hebrew text, but in the Greek translation of Psalm 97, it has a superscription before the psalm actually starts, and the superscription says, for David, when his land is established, whatever that means, right? For David, when his land is established. And I'm going to argue that what I think he means is this is a song written for David when he enters into secure possession of and authority over the land. That's the point. And that then explains Hebrews. Because Paul, in Hebrews, introduces Psalm 97. And again, when he brings the firstborn into his administration... It says, and let all the angeloi of God worship him. And again, when he brings his firstborn into his administration. So in other words, this is reflecting, this is a a psalm written with respect to David, because David is called the firstborn there, and we'll look at that in the next psalm that we look at. David is called the firstborn there. And again, when he, God, brings the firstborn, David, into his administration, and then he quotes Psalm 97. So why is he quoting 97 and prefacing it when he brings David into his administration? I think because that's the occasion upon which Psalm 97 is reflecting. It's David entering his reign. It's David entering his rule over Israel and therefore over the world. That's what the occasion that this song has in view. Okay, I hope that's clear. So that's a clue, and Paul may actually say what he says, introducing Psalm 97, because of the superscription in the Greek translation. I don't know. Okay, so the king is being crowned king of Israel, and the psalm is reflecting on that. Because the king is coming into his throne, Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. 
Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of Yahweh, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Now, that's impressive enough if we're talking about the transcendent God of the universe, or you're talking about Yahweh as he revealed himself through various theophanies in the Old Testament, but we're talking about an ordinary mortal human being, David, for example, and saying these things about his reign and about his rule. You follow me? And I'm going to argue that's why Paul picks this psalm to quote it in Hebrews 1. An ordinary mortal human being gets this said about him? That's pretty impressive. Now, of course, David, it could never be said literally of King David that fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about, or that his lightnings lit up the world, the earth saw and trembled. The one of whom that may literally come true would be Jesus, because David is just a placeholder for a set of promises that have been made with respect to the king who will reign as the embodiment of God. And his son Solomon was a placeholder, and Rehoboam was a placeholder. Right down through history, all the kings of Israel were placeholders for the king who was going to come, who would literally and truly be the embodiment of Yahweh's rule. And of him some of these things are probably literally going to come true. Now, the psalm is, a lot of these things I think are allusions to the things that transpired around Mount Sinai. The darkness, the cloud, the lightnings, and so on were literally events that happened when Israel met their God at Mount Sinai. And the, obviously the, the songwriter here, the poet here, is simply looking at the power that God displayed at Mount Sinai and saying that power has been invested in this human being, this man. Okay, so Yahweh reigns with the entering into his power of the, the man David. It can be said that now Yahweh reigns, let the earth rejoice, blah, 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 till we get to verse 7. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols, Worship him, all you gods. But there, the Septuagint, the Greek translation has, worship him, all you angeloi, not gods, Elohim, but angeloi in the Greek, and usually translated angels. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Yahweh. Because of your judgments, O Yahweh, looking at, pointing to, and thinking about a human being sitting on the throne. For you are Yahweh most high. Who's the you? I don't think he's saying, for Yahweh, you are Yahweh most high. I think he's, they're looking at the human king and saying, for you, the human king, are Yahweh most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. That's Elohim. And the Greek there has the word theos, not angelos there. It just translates it literally gods. For you are exalted far above all gods. 
Hate evil, you who love Yahweh, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in Yahweh, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Okay, now, the part that Paul quotes, is going to quote in Hebrews, is back in verse 7. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you ongoloi, is the way he's going to put it in Hebrews. He quotes the Septuagint. Worship him, all you ongoloi. What does that mean? And why is that relevant to his point? Well, it would be nice if ongoloi here means theophanies, the burning bush, pillar of fire, and so on. That would be nice. I don't think that fits the context of the psalm very well, to call upon the theophanies of God to worship the king of Israel. It's not impossible, but I just don't think that really fits the context of the psalm. So what does he mean? Worship him, all you Elohim, gods, or worship him, all you ongoloi. Well, notice he started this by saying, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. And a little later, two verses later, he talks about how you, the king of Israel, are Yahweh most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods, all Elohim. Another possibility, a very likely possibility, is that the gods here are the gods of all the polytheists surrounding Israel in the ancient world. So worship him, all you gods, Uh, Marduk and Babylon, the various gods of the Egyptians, you be worshiping him. Now notice who the him is, the king of Israel, the human being, the human king of Israel. Worship him, all your gods, because he's so much superior to you. That's a very real possibility. That's certainly what he means in verse 9 when he talks about how the king is Yahweh most high, exalted far above all gods. Most certainly that's what he means there, is that he has a more exalted standing and status than any god of any people in the whole ancient Near East. So that might be, but I lean toward a slightly different interpretation. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images. There were two kinds of people who had graven images among the Jews, among Israel in the ancient world. Graven images would be those various things that they had carved So they're basically your household gods that you kept, little statuettes of one kind or another that were in the shape of some kind of bizarre-looking male or some bizarre-looking female, and that was your god, and you took it around with you, and you carried it around with you, and you worshipped it. Now, the polytheists in the ancient world, they didn't believe that a god was the god. What they believed is that that was one of the tokens of the god, one of the places where, one of the loci where that God's power and authority was sort of concentrated there. So that represented the God to you in all of its power. And the God was present there in all of his power, that kind of idea. There would be sacred mountains that were tokens of the power of a God, or there'd be sacred springs that would be the token of the power of a God. The sun was the token of the power of the God of the Egyptians. The moon was the token of the God of the Babylonians. So they, in nature, there are all these things in nature that were just, they basically had objects of one kind or another 
that represented that God and were, was kind of a concentration of the power and presence of that God. Well, one of, the, one of the tokens were these little graven images that they would create of their gods, and those were tokens of the presence and power of the God. Understandably then, Israel, who was instructed to have no other gods before them and to worship the one and only God, Yahweh, what did they do? They made graven images of their God. It was, they were commanded not to, but they did. So I worship Yahweh, but here's Yahweh right here in my hand. You know, I have a little graven image of Yahweh, and I've got an extra Yahweh in my drawer in the bedroom, and in the glove compartment of my car, I have a Yahweh, right? These are the gods that they would worship. Now, you'd also have graven images of other gods, of other people, but the question here is, is it the false gods of other people that he has in mind here, or is it the graven images of Yahweh that he has in mind here? I think it's the latter here. So he's saying, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images. They should be ashamed even though they worship, purportedly are worshiping Yahweh, but they're worshiping Yahweh in the form of these little statues that they've built. Now, why should they be ashamed? Because you want to know where God has embodied his presence and his authority? In that man who's sitting on the throne is the king of Israel, not in your little stone statuette. So worship the king, don't worship the graven image. I think that's, that's the point that he's making here. So let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols, worship him, the king, right? That's the him. Worship him, all you gods. And I, I think it's, a, it's probably a poetic way of saying, I don't, think it's, I don't think he means this literally, I think it's just a poetic way of saying, you know those little pocket Yahwehs that you've got? They should be bowing down to the king because they don't hold the candle to who he is in importance to the king that God has appointed, that God himself has made a covenant with, that he would be a father to him and the king would be a son to him. So if that's right, then I have to wonder whether angelos, we have to expand our understanding of the field of meaning of angelos a little bit more than we have already. I don't have any independent evidence for this, so take this with a grain of salt. But it would not surprise me at all if the various tokens of the gods among the polytheists, if the word in Greek that got used to describe those various tokens was angelos. A token was an angelos of the god, a messenger of that god, a person or place or thing that represents that god to you and brings that god to you, declares that god to you. That's the, an angelos. Now, as I say, I don't have any independent evidence for that right now, so you scholars go to work. But if I were betting, I'd bet that you'll find that kind of evidence. I, I, actually, I don't know if you'll find the, that kind of evidence, but I'll bet you that that's where the meaning of the word angelos is coming from in the Septuagint translation. Because otherwise, why would you translate Elohim here as angelos? Okay, so why does Paul quote it? Notice what he's saying. When God brings his king into his position of authority and rule over the nation of Israel, Psalm 97 says, worship him, all you tokens of God. Now, what they're arguing is the Messiah, 
the true Messiah or the true Son of God when he comes is going to be one of those tokens of God, God in human form, God appearing as a human being, God seeming to be a human being in a visual kind of appearance or apparition of some kind. Well, in the way that the word angelos is used in Psalm 97, that would make that Son of God an angelos. And so what Paul is arguing is, well, Psalm 97 says an angelos of God is not nearly as important as the king, the human being, the ordinary human being who God appointed to actually sit on the throne in Israel and be the embodiment of his rule over all the people. They are to bow to him. They are to worship him. So that, that would be exactly the kind of argument that he wants to make in Hebrews chapter 1. Questions or comments on Psalm 97? My Bible has the reference for that verse as Deuteronomy 32:43, and I was wondering why. In your Hebrew thing, hmm? you mean a cross-reference from Hebrews one? Yeah, the cross-reference for. It's what? been a long time since I looked at it, but all I can remember is they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> that happens. Just because you have a cross-reference doesn't mean it has anything to do with the meaning of the passage you're looking at. Someday, ask David about who makes cross-references for Bibles. Yeah, he has an interesting story about that. Hi, Jack. Hi. Um, when you're talking about uh, graven images, I just started thinking about the Catholic Church and basically all the different artifacts that they essentially worship and the different saints. And how do they take that passage? I mean, if it's not too much off topic, but how do they take that passage as, you know, do they just ignore it? Or because that to me sounds like graven images? Mm-hmm. You know what? I don't have a clue. I, I don't know the answer to that. Anyone come out of Catholicism and know the answer to that? I don't come from the Catholic Church, but I would have the same exact question about the Eastern Orthodox Church, the, all the icons and all mm -hmm. the symbology and all that, that. It would be the same thing. I know in Eastern Orthodoxy, they see an icon as a window into the transcendent realm and that you are actually having access, some kind of access to the transcendent realm through the window of the icon. My sense is that Roman Catholicism doesn't have anything quite that sophisticated to offer, but I don't actually know. I mean, that's a great question. Certainly, as an ignorant, uninformed observer, it looks to me like they're just ignoring the commandment. So there's a couple of interesting things that we've run into in Jeremiah where... It's, it seems really clear that the people of Israel are essentially seeing history through the lenses of, of these amazing events that the nation went through, um, specifically the Exodus and, and others, which makes a lot of sense why the imagery at the beginning of that psalm is, is hearkening back to what happened on Sinai. Mm -hmm. But you run across these things in Jeremiah where it seems like the people are being reminded that only seeing God's activity in history through, you know, what happened at the Exodus or Sinai is kind of myopic and that there's something that God is, will be doing or is going to do or has planned that is going to far outshadow, you know, far overshadow anything that, that they've seen so far. Hmm. So let me read you a couple things because these are kind of interesting. Men will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord, etc., etc. And then this other one, 
Then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder if part of what Paul is getting at, how he's interpreting that psalm, and part of why the psalm opens with all of these references to Sinai, I mean, those are all, those are all ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. That, that are being, you know, those are all theophanies that are being listed. Mm-hmm. But it's almost as if the, the psalmist is saying, don't get caught up on these theophanies as being, you know, the summation and... Mm-hmm. and the pinnacle of how God is going to reveal himself to his people, he has something bigger in mind. He has something, you know, much bigger that, that will cause us to no longer look upon those and treat them as idols and, you know, worship those angeloi as if that's the point, mm-hmm. but look at the sun instead. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. that, I mean, it kind of it gets you to the same place, but might account better for how Paul is taking it, why he, why he takes it as Angeloi, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Hi. I was just making a com- I wanted to make a comment because I was raised Roman Catholic, and um, I was listening, and I forgot where I was going with it, but they would, I had questioned the graven images and icons, and I was always told that it was just to bring to mind. Okay. It basically bring to mind whatever, whether it was God or Jesus or a patron saint. But they would deny that they ever worshipped. Right. Anything okay. of a great image. So some kind of mnemonic device. There. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. What I heard you say was that the. Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, changed the word Elohim to Angeloi. Is that what I heard? Well, I'm not, I'm not saying they changed it. Okay. They translated it. They translated it, it that yeah. way. So, and that there was a superscription, and the superscription was not part of the scriptures, but was an editing mark of some sort? Yeah, it's not part of a psalm. It's just kind of a, a note introducing the psalm. But it, it appears to me that Paul takes the note introducing the psalm as rightly orienting you to the psalm. That, that was my question, is there was a, somebody translating, some sort of editor, some sort of scribe that made a decision, a judgment, right. Right. and Paul takes that judgment as being revelation. Yeah, now... We could ask the question, does he take it just because he doesn't challenge it and question it? Or has he studied the psalm and said, yeah, that makes sense? Uh, I, I would assume it's the latter, that, that he's saying, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense out of the psalm. That's got to be what's going on there. Because where did the guy who wrote the superscription get that? By reading the psalm and seeing what made sense. We may feel uncomfortable with that, but there's so much in the Bible that we have to, we just have to dive in, immerse ourselves in the, like in this case in Psalm 97, and figure out what background could possibly make sense out of all the details of the text. And that's called abductive reasoning. We use abductive reasoning all the time to reconstruct 
what is highly likely to be the appropriate story in the background based on the evidence that's right in front of me that I can see firsthand. But we have no choice but to use abductive reasoning for a lot of scripture. It's the only way we can get at what's really going on there because we don't have any authoritative commentary or authoritative comment or authoritative notation that's from God telling us, read this psalm as if it's sung on this occasion. So we have to figure it out abductively. So if I'm reading along in, say, the English Standard Version or the New American Standard and there doesn't happen to be any mark at the beginning of that psalm and it just launches in where it does, I wouldn't have a clue that this is referring to the king of Israel. It would just look like it's referring to Yahweh. Yeah, at first blush. But that's why I say we, should never, we shouldn't take things just at face value. We need to dive into them and think critically what's actually going on here, what's really behind this, who is the you. One of the things that struck me this time through that has never struck me before is that, you know, you are Yahweh most high. That's way more profound if the you is talking to somebody else other than Yahweh. Otherwise, you're saying, Yahweh, you're Yahweh. Oh, who told? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Not nearly as much sense. But all of a sudden, the psalm begins to make a lot of sense if this is written with some other you in mind and saying all those things with respect to that some other you. And who is that some other you? Well, it's the king of Israel, King David. So I guess my final question on this then is the Israelite or the, say, the person that was involved in downstream from this psalm, understanding it in the context of their culture, did they imagine that this was a person? Would that have been their conclusion? or their, Did they ever come to that, like you say, using abductive reasoning at that time in history? Well, think that part, partly you have to remember that the fact that the scriptures even survived is a miracle, because like they stopped reading them. Your average person is not really paying that much attention to scriptures. They're doing their own thing, worshiping other gods until God sends them into captivity in Babylon. Then you have a scholar class develop in Babylon, but then the rabbis take over. And your average person is not reading the scriptures, they're listening to the rabbi. And the rabbinic tradition, much like the medieval scholastic tradition in, in Christianity, is not really grounded in the scriptures so much as in the tradition and stories and inner conversations between the rabbis about the scriptures. And they invent a whole new set of rules that have nothing to do with getting to, to the real meaning of the text. I've probably said this before, but I, I think that's, that's one of the things that was so unique about Jesus. Remember Luke says and talks about the people marveling. Jesus was not like the other teachers because he taught as one having authority. Well, what exactly does that mean? I think what that means is Jesus would look at the scripture text, the Torah, read it, decide what it meant, and tell you what he thought it meant. What would every other rabbi do? They'd say, Rabbi so-and-so says such-and-such. Rabbi so-and-so says this other thing. This other rabbi says this thing. And another rabbi says this thing. And I put all that together to say this. And by the time you get to what you have to say, you're all wound in knots anyway by what all the other rabbis did. They're not speaking as a teacher who's authoritatively bringing the message of the scripture text to bear on your life. They're doing this rabbinic game that they're involved in. Jesus didn't play that game. 
And interesting, the apostles don't play that game. They are grounded solely and completely and only in the scriptural text itself and taking their cues from what that teaches them. So but but they, that was rare. I mean, that was like when Jesus comes on the scene, wow, how do you, how's he doing that? <laughs> Nobody does that. But someone at the time of the translation of the Septuagint was making those uh, Evidently, decisions. yeah. That whatever scholarly class or yeah. some rabbi or, right. you know, Set of rabbis, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. As much as they got wrong, they got a lot of stuff right. They knew their Torah, the, the scholarly class, the scribes. They knew their Torah. Remember, Jesus at his bar mitzvah takes that opportunity to ask all kinds of questions of the rabbis in the temple. Okay, I know I'm the son. I've, I've got some questions here. This Isaiah 53 is looking kind of bleak. <laughs> Can you explain Isaiah 53 to me? Yeah. I, and and he's, he's just filled with questions that, for his own self-identity, these rabbis can help him because they know the Torah. They know the scripture. They have a lot that they can offer him. Now, there's a lot they got wrong, but there's a lot that they, that they understood. If this is anticipatory of the uh, eternal king, so th- it, it makes a ton of sense, right? If there's the theater of, in the coronation where people are saying these things to an empty chair, and even David himself would be saying this to an empty chair, because they've been promised they're going to have an eternal king. One of these days, one of our generations will stand before an eternal king. And they kind of pause for a minute and go, okay, not today. So you go sit down. Mm -hmm. But what we're going to do is you're going to hold this little sign that says, I'm just a Mm stand-in. And I I keep flashing on the the steward of Gondor in Mm -hmm. the the movies, the Tolkien movies. He got too big for his britches. And when he was told the king was coming, he didn't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. He took ownership of the, the throne instead of holding that little sign that just says, a stand-in for the guy who's eventually going to show up and do this. Exactly. Yeah. And as long as everybody knew that, the, the choir and the, the people along the way, and as long as he stopped and said, just remind you one last time before I sit down, it's not me, but he will be here. And he's chosen me to sit here in his stead until then. Mm-hmm. Got it? Then this all makes sense. But it'd be great if the uh, Greek scholar who wrote that superscript on there told us which one of the Jewish scholars told him that, and was that something they had brought back with them, kept intact through their time in Babylon. Because if, if they did take with them all the teachings that had been preserved up to that point, then some of the rabbinic tradition was good to go. It was based on a sound teaching, mm-hmm. no matter how far off it went. So, I mean, that's what we need to know, right? To well, or, but in the absence of that, we have to figure it out ourselves. And ask, why did Paul, why right. did Paul respect exactly. the Greek translation? Right. In fa- and that may have been part of his rabbinic tradition that we got this one right because we know it was handed down from before Babylon. Yeah. Understand, I'm not arguing that there's even a difference between the Hebrew and the Greek. The Greek is just the way they chose to translate it, having understood the Hebrew the way they understood the Hebrew. The Hebrew says the same thing, I'm assuming. But in order to render it in Greek in a way that's going to communicate to a Greek reader accurately what it says, they have to use the word angeloi rather than uh, theoi. Because to their audience, those gods would have been real. Yeah, or something. Or had too much sense of reality. Yeah. Some, something like that, yeah. This has absolutely nothing to do with Hebrews, but I just love this. 
This is so different in the ancient world from all of the other polytheistic religions. Hate evil, you who love Yahweh, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. But hate evil, you who love Yahweh. No Babylonian would ever say that about Marduk. You don't worship Marduk by hating evil. It has nothing to do with morality. It's all magic and incantations and getting your crops to grow and getting the rains to fall and all that kind of stuff and it has absolutely nothing to do with you and the integrity of your own character. But with Yahweh, it's always how do you serve Yahweh by hating evil. Very, very significant. But nothing to do with our argument here. Just a quick question to clarify. I was looking at the verse where he says, it is in Hebrews, the author says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and I was just wondering, I just was struck by how kind of out of nowhere that comes because mm-hmm. he hasn't talked about a firstborn or anything. And notice how they've translated it. Mm-hmm. Brings him into the world. Mm-hmm. The translator is thinking of the, they're thinking of the incarnation there. But it's not the word cosmos. It's the word for a regime, a, a realm, a, an administration. So. so my question is that firstborn, the firstborn, is he thinking David there? Is he thinking David. Jesus? He's thinking and let's, okay. let's get to that. We'll go there next. Psalm 89. Now, he doesn't cite Psalm 89. The only reason I'm bringing up Psalm 89 is to answer Karina's question about the firstborn. What does he mean by he brings the firstborn into his administration? This is an amazing psalm, but Paul doesn't quote it. Before we look at that, let me just remind you of 2 Samuel really quickly here. I'm just going to read a little bit of 2 Samuel, because you're going to see all kinds of verbal allusions to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place. And notice the, I commented on this before, the interrelationship between the promise to David and the promise to the people of Israel. They're all interrelated with each other. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his kingdom, reminiscent of the superscription to Psalm 97. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness, my chesed, shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Okay, keep in mind all the things that he said to David here as we look at Psalm 89. It's a long psalm. I'm going to skip some parts. He starts off, I will sing of the chesed of Yahweh forever. So this is about the chesed of Yahweh. And remember, the concept of chesed, as I'm understanding it, is God's dogged, inviolable commitment to keep his promises. If God promises to do something, he's going to do it. And that, that's a manifestation of God's chesed. 
I will sing of the chesed of Yahweh forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, chesed will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Okay, then he gets into a fairly long section about the majesty of Yahweh and how impressive Yahweh himself is. And he ends that section, for our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. So what is he saying there? Our shield belongs to Yahweh. Our king belongs to the Holy One of Israel. An identification between Yahweh, the transcendent God, and the king of Israel. The king of Israel belongs to Yahweh. And I think he's defining a unique relationship between Yahweh and the king of Israel. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. And anointed is Mashiach. He's the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, because God with his holy oil has anointed him. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my chesed will be with him. Not like Saul, from whom I removed my chesed, I will not remove it from David. My faithfulness and my chesed will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. I'm not sure, maybe there's a poetic, some poetry there that I'm missing, but I think that's an allusion to the, the extent of the domain that he's going to give to him. It's going to include dominion over the seas and the rivers. He, it's nature. It's all of God's created reality that is the domain of the king of Israel's rule. He will cry to me, you are my father. I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. I also now recognize who he's talking about here. He just called him David, right? We, we know he's talking to David. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So what is the concept of the firstborn? The concept of the firstborn is that one who stands to inherit the majestic sovereign rule of God over all of creation. No other king gets that inheritance. He's the highest of all the kings of the earth because he stands to inherit that rule, that sovereign reign, like a firstborn child receives the inheritance of his father. That's what the king of Israel is going to do. My chesed I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod. Right out of Second Samuel, right? He said the same thing to David. I will punish them with a rod, but I will not remove my hesed from them. Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my chesed from him, 
nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Now in this psalm, okay, I think in this psalm, we fast-forwarded several generations, and we're at a time in Israel. This psalm is being written at a time in Israel where the king of Israel, the Davidic king of Israel, is broken down, is weak, is geopolitically in a mess. The other nations are triumphing over him. So that's what happens when he transitioned to 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed Messiah. That is, God is judging Israel. Even with all these promises given to the king of Israel, God has come in judgment and in wrath. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. So with all these grandiose promises given to David and his offspring, the psalmist, the poet here, finds himself in a situation where nothing like that is, I mean, nothing that couldn't be further from the reality. The reality is the king of Israel is being defeated, is being brought to defeat and shame. And then the psalm ends. How long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Just this sort of plaintive plea. You made a promise. How long must we wait? How long must we wait for this promise to be fulfilled and and realized? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Where are your former loving kindnesses, chesed, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness. Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Yahweh, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your Messiah, of your anointed. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen. Now, as I say, Paul could have cited that here, but It doesn't really serve his purposes in the argument of Hebrews 1, but I I show you that because that's where the term firstborn comes from, or where we see evidence of what firstborn means. It's applied to David, and it's the promise of the Davidic covenant. He's the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth, and that's what Paul recognizes. So that's how he prefaces his quote from Psalm 97. He says, when he brings his firstborn into his administration and establishes his kingdom, he says, and then he quotes, let all the angeloi worship him. Did I answer your question, Karina? Was that anything else on Psalm 97? Okay, all right, Psalm 45. We fast forwarded, let's wind back a little bit, but not all the way to David. This next one is written, it could go back as far as Solomon, I would imagine, and maybe not as far back as, as Solomon. It may be later than Solomon. This is a song to be sung at a wedding, the wedding of the king of Israel, 
uh, wedded to a bride, probably one of several brides, because a lot of these, most of these kings had more than one wife. But it's a Davidic king, and so mostly it's to the king with a little interlude to the bride toward the end of the psalm. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay, who's he talking about here? We're going to see in just a second. He's not talking to God because he's going to talk about God's relationship to this God in a second. This one that he's calling, O God, is the king. Now, why would you call the king, O God, if you're a Jew and you believe in one and only one God? The only reason you would possibly use the title, O God, in reference to the king, the Davidic king, is because of the promise that God made to David. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Which, it isn't obvious what that means, but when we recognize the background, I am going to make you a human being, the human embodiment of me, my reign, my power, my majesty, my authority. So you might as well be me, in other words, in the form of a human being. So... It's no stretch, then, to think that you can turn around and honor the king by calling him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, the real God, and then, lest there be any confusion, king, your God, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you the king, and again anointed you, the the word for Messiah there, with the oil of joy above your fellows. That's the part Paul's going to quote in Hebrews. You have, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows or above your companions or something like that. So what's significant for Paul in his argument in Hebrews is this one that bears the title God has human beings for companions. They're his equals, fellow human beings. He's just one of the guys. But he's the one of the guys that God has singled out and selected and chosen to make his son to a point to be that human being who would rule as Yahweh himself forever in the kingdom of God. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And then he directs his attention to the bride, the queen. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your lord. Bow down to him, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Now it turns back with reference to the king again. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. 
the virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give thanks forever and ever. Now, we're accustomed to kings being flattered, right? So you say all kinds of things about how impressive they are. But the thing is, God promised this. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. That's actually true of this king. Not of that person, king in person, but of the throne that he sits in. Be remembered to all generations. Questions about that? I'm just kind of marveling that, as you say, Paul, writing this, is pulling from his knowledge, his interpretation, from all these sources. I mean, he's seeing something nobody else is seeing, apparently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And taking, to me, this is, this is difficult stuff, really difficult, and yeah. complex and even mysterious. Not that it is a mystery, but I mean, it just, I'm kind of marveling at him doing this laying it all out like this from the Psalms and painting this picture that I'm having trouble staying with it and seeing the picture and holding it in my head Hmm. from all these things. I mean, it's slowly forming, but I'm just kind of marveling at it. Is this the the response you have that he's he's come up with this? I, I find it fascinating. Now, I think Paul is brilliant. I think he was a genius. I think he was knowledgeable. I I think he was just an amazing human being. But we do have to remember, he, he may not have been the only one to know all this stuff. Remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus showed them from the scriptures all the things from the beginning and to the end that point to him. So Jesus has probably taught this same stuff to who knows how many people before he splits. So there are other people who know at least the rough outlines of this thing as well, I think. Paul was a latecomer, though, and it wouldn't surprise me if he found it on his own. He spent, we don't know how many years in Arabia, I think just working through everything he knew from the scriptures, from the Torah, to try to figure all this stuff out, knowing that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And he's gone back to the drawing board going, so how does this work? And I'm sure a lot of this stuff was stuff that he discovered in his studying at that, at that point. But yeah, the thing that blocks us from getting it, I mean, I look at it now and I go, why was that not obvious to me? And I know why it wasn't obvious to me. It's because anytime I turned to a psalm, I thought it was about me. That's how we're trained to look at these things. This is God talking about how he's going to be faithful to you, Jack. He's going to protect you, Jack. He's going to keep you safe, Jack. He's going to keep you secure, Jack. He's going to exalt you, Jack. I mean, isn't that what the whole Bible is? Isn't it to me? And instead, what we have in the Bible is this epic battle. You you know, you brought up Lord of the Rings. I mean, it, it really is more like Lord of the Rings than what we've ever been taught before. This is an epic battle against God and the enemies of God in mankind as that has played itself out in history. And the more we understand that, the more we're going to understand current events. I mean, this is what's happening today in the world is not, it's not incidental. This is just the playing out of these same themes that the Psalms were talking about way back then, just in modern dress and in modern times and in a different point in history. 
The enemies of God are opposed to God and everything he stands for and everything he's doing. And if it comes to the Messiah, they want to kill him. It's always the way it's been. It's always the way it's going to be. The thing that I marvel at, if I'm right about my reading of Revelation, Jesus comes back. He reigns on the earth over all the nations. The nations flock to Jerusalem as a place of prayer and worship. They see firsthand a society of sanctified people, which the world has never seen before. And they have a thousand years of that, however long that lasts. But we have a thousand years of that. And what do the peoples of the earth decide at the end of that? Let's go kill Jesus. Wouldn't that be new and different? Let's go kill Jesus. Incredible. The obtuseness, the blindness, the depravity of the human heart that we can have him show up in his glory as obviously sent from God, as obviously representing God, and, we, and what do we do? We just want to kill him. It's incredible to me. But, see, that's not about me. <laughs> that's not God bringing comfort into my life and solving my problems and keeping me safe and keeping me secure. All these psalms are talking about David expecting God to save him. But Why? because he made a promise to him as God's anointed, not because he's a human being. God didn't make that promise to me. So I'm misapplying the psalm if I take all that safety and security as somehow being a promise that he's making to me. But what I have to understand is that, that Jesus is the major player in the epic battle of all of history of which I am both a spectator and ultimately a participant. And I, I need to find meaning in my life in relationship to that. And once you shift gears, it's spectacular. It's amazing. It's marvelous. But I have to shift gears. This is not devotional stuff that's trying to make me feel better and cope with life a little bit better. This is about the streams of evil and good doing battle with each other throughout all of history. And the Psalms are just reflections of snapshots, moments in that ongoing battle in opposition and tension. I might just be really slow, but I'm really confused. Okay. You're talking, you said you and the king to come. Are you talking about Jesus to come? Are you talking about David or neither? I'm sorry, where are you? On 45, you talked about Yahweh talking about the king, but he's not talking to himself. And then in 97, you talked about the you. Are those two separate? I think that's the king. So if it's David, it's David. If it's Solomon, it's Solomon. If it's Rehoboam, it's Rehoboam. But it's not just any old king. It's the king to whom God has made the promise of that he's going to establish his throne forever. So you and I know that the way that God is going to establish David's throne forever is when this future son of David comes along he actually ends up being the individual who's going to rule forever in the kingdom of God. So it ends up being Jesus. But the psalmist doesn't know that. The psalmist is just looking at at this throne. That's what Logan was talking about. It could be an empty throne, and you'd still make all the praises to this empty throne because you don't know who's sitting there yet. You don't know who the one is that's actually going to literally fulfill all these promises. Does that make sense? I know you know this, and I just have to say it anyway, though. I think we can take great comfort in the Psalms. Granted, they're not you know, written to us, but what they do is they show us who God is mm-hmm. and that he's a God of faithfulness, and when he makes promises, he keeps them. And he has made certain promises to those who believe in him. And even though we suffer in this life, 
we know that he's going to keep his promise to yeah. us. So the kind of God that's revealed in the Psalms is our God, and we can take great comfort in that. I yeah, think. great point. Yeah, because we're counting on surviving death. Why are we counting on that? Because he promised. Who promised it? The God of chesed, the God who when he makes a promise, he keeps it. He doesn't get defeated. He doesn't get deterred. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't forget. He keeps it. And so the same God who's going to keep the promises to David is going to keep the promise to each and every one of us. Yeah. But what did he promise me? He didn't promise me I'm going to get through life without sorrow and grief and suffering and get through this life unscathed. But what he did promise me is I'm, I'm not going to be defeated by death. I'm going to, my existence is going to go on. I'm not going to become nothing. My existence is not going to be negated and canceled and brought to nothing. I'm going to continue on forever and ever living in that kingdom of whom Jesus is the king, over whom Jesus is the king. That's an incredible promise, and God's chesed has everything to do with that. Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to stop here. Rats, I wanted to get to the next psalm. The next psalm is the most difficult one in Hebrews 1 because it, it looks like it has nothing to do with Jesus. And what we're going to discover is it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. <laughs> and so the question is, why is it there, and how is it functioning in, in Hebrews 1? But we'll, we'll get there later. Thank you.